electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the keynote by CNBC Events. I'm Meg Terrell, CNBC's senior health and science reporter. On this podcast, we bring you in-depth, candid conversations with executives, experts, and thought leaders. Today, an interview with Dr. Kari Stephenson. He's the founder and CEO of Decode Genetics, based in Reykjavik, Iceland. He was previously a professor of neuroscience at Harvard University, and he's widely recognized as a leading figure in human genetics. Dr. Stephenson's lab worked in coordination with the state government to study the prevalence of coronavirus in Iceland's population. Through early testing and extensive tracking, Iceland has been very successful in containing COVID-19, with just a handful of cases in the country since early May. We invited Dr. Stephenson to join us to discuss Iceland's strategy and what the U.S. might take away from it. The strategy that Iceland took was to screen widely for the virus, screen widely in the population in general, in addition to testing everyone with signs and symptoms and everyone who came from areas of the country that were considered high risk. And then is to take the infected, put them in isolation and have a very vigorous tracking of the contact of the infected and put them in quarantine. We kept our childcare centers open. We kept our elementary schools open. We kept our restaurants open, but we put a ban on gathering of more than 20 people, and we closed the movie theaters and, and the orchestra halls. But we didn't take any draconic measures. We didn't close our borders. We didn't have people, the population in general, under a lockdown. So by using these measures, and, and I think that the tracking of the contacts of the infected was an extraordinarily important component of the measure that managed to contain the the, the epidemic in Iceland. Well, take us back to the earliest days uh, of when you were learning about this new virus and the conversations you and leaders uh, in Iceland had about uh, what to do. And, um, and the fact that you did start testing so early, uh, it really looks like Iceland's testing ramped up so much more quickly than the rest of the world. Um, how did you know that you we needed to do that? What, what were you thinking about? Yeah. The news of an emerging epidemic in China uh, came in the beginning or the middle of, of January. In Iceland, the healthcare authorities began to, to screen uh, those who had signs and symptoms that could have been due to, to COVID-19 as early as the 31st of January. We at Decogenetics started the screen on the 13th of March. And the re reason, basically, we started to do so is that I was one day driving to work, listening to news on the radio of the epidemic in China, and they were talking about the, the death rate from the virus. And if I remember correctly, they said it would be about 3.4%. And I didn't understand how they could calculate out the death rate without knowing the distribution of the virus in the population in general. And that prompted me to suggest when I came to work that we should, at DECO, should begin to screen the population in general. We contacted the healthcare authorities in Iceland, 
and they welcomed this. And since then, we have screened about 15% of the population. And it turned out that in the viral screen, about 0.6% of the population was positive for the virus. And on the basis of the identification of those individuals, we put people into isolation. We put people into, into quarantine. We, we put together a very effective mechanism of tracking the contacts of the infected. We even went as far as using apps on, on, on uh, smartphones. So if you got infected, it was possible to locate all cell phones that had come within two meters of your own cell phone within the past five days. And using these measures, we were, we were able to contain the epidemic. So it could be argued that the current phase of the epidemic is completely over in Iceland. Wow. In terms of those apps, it's something I've been curious about. Uh, they would notify anybody who came within two meters of somebody who's infected. Is that for any period of time? So even if you just passed somebody on the street who was infected, they would be notified? It was, was basically if you, all of the cell phones that had been within one to two, meet, two, two meters of your own cellular phone for any period of time would be identified. So you could you could contact these people, you could phone them, you could explore further what kind of an interaction went between the carriers of these two cell phones. So it isn't that the cell phones took over. The cell phone apps were simply one of the many instruments that the tracking team used. Oh, that's fascinating. And then the people would be trusted uh, to connect with one another to learn more about how they might have come into contact? No, it was the, the tracking team phoned the, the people with the cellular phones that came within a certain distance. But th these, these apps in many ways are a little bit threatening. They constitute a little bit of a threat to your privacy. But in, in Iceland, these apps were only downloaded into cellular phone of people who volunteered to do so. Well, that's very interesting. Um, I, I want to bring up a question that came up quite a bit after your appearance with us a month ago, uh, which is whether what Iceland has done can be applied in the United States. And so many people have pointed out the differences in the sizes of the country, the U.S. being 1,000 times the population of Iceland. Can the U.S. do yeah. what Iceland has done? Without any question. I mean, we may be, you may be 1,000 times bigger than us, and therefore it is much more difficult. But I'm convinced that you have 5,000 times more resources than we do in Iceland. And basically, almost all of the technology used for this was invented in the United States. And it is tragic to watch that you people haven't been used your own inventions to protect yourself. I mean, I think, I think there's very little question that, that if testing has started, for example, if you would have drafted your universities, these, these institutions with enormous amount of talent, enormous amount of know-how and technology could have taken on the testing, could have taken on that data analysis, could have taken on the, the organization of, of methods to contain the epidemic in your country. With, you know, and, and, and I'm absolutely convinced that everything we did in Iceland could have been done in the United States at least as effectively. Coming up on the keynote, the first thing Dr. Stephenson would do if he were put in charge of the U.S. coronavirus response. And he says it's relatively simple. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, 
packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to the keynote. I'm Meg Terrell. You're listening to my conversation with Dr. Kari Stephenson, founder and CEO of Deco Genetics in Reykjavik, Iceland. Well, one of the things that is a huge delta between Iceland and, and the United States, as you pointed out, is, is the testing. And so you've tested between 15 and 16% of the population in Iceland. In order for the U.S. to match that, we would have to test 51 million people. As of yesterday, we had tested 12 million people. As you observe us from the outside, why do you think we can't get our capacity up higher? I don't. I think that you lack uh, central coordination. I think the federal government has failed you a little bit. I think that this be, has been a lack of attempt to coordinate the effort. And there has been, at least looking at it from outside, there has been a little bit of, of struggle between the states and the federal government in how this should be done how they should be resourced, who should pay for what. And and it, it also looks like there has been too little accountability of, of what has really been done and what people have claimed that they have done. So I think this is a matter of, I mean, it it is. The United States is uh, has always hung a little bit on to this image of being the last frontier. That is a little bit of a wild country in a way. But you certainly, if you would have organized, you have all the resources necessary. You have this incredibly talented scientist. You have this enormously powerful industry. So I think, I think it is simply sad that the most powerful country in the world is not leading the way when it comes to dealing with this threat from the outside. Well, that brings us to one of our viewer questions. It's Dr. Mike Polini, uh, the former CEO of Foundation Medicine, um, asks, what would Dr. Stephenson do to combat COVID-19 in the U.S. if he was running the Department of Health and Human Services? Dr. Stephenson, what would be your plan? I, I think that you are extremely fortunate that I'm not running HHS. <laughs> but, but, Why is that? But, what, what, but, but one of the things that I would probably do is that I would try to to increase the screening you done, do very dramatically. And you would have to put together local teams of people to track the contacts of the infected. I think it would be reasonable to expect people to download the kind of apps I was talking about to make the, the tracking easier. And then you have to put the people who are infected into isolation and the contacts into, into quarantine. This is relatively simple. And it's actually amazing how uh, how frequently or how few exceptions there are to the fact that people abide by their order to go into quarantine, to go into isolation. And it's actually one, one of the things that you, you probably would benefit from more than anything is if you manage to find some sort of a common denominator for people, if it would, would be able to organize a, a sort of a federal effort that people, people would believe in. I mean, on one hand, you have Fauci, who is who is uh, sort of trying to organize the way in which, he, or at least express himself on the way in which this should be done. 
And the other hand, you have your commander-in-chief, who is always now and then intermittently undermining his authority. So I think that, I think you have you have a problem that begins at the top. And and don't misunderstand me. I think that everyone has the same goal in mind, that you you want to bring this under control. But but in a moment like this, it is almost like a war. You have to expect people to to you have to expect the government to put together some sort of a authority structure or, or put in place some authority that can tell you how you should deal with it, but not have this as a matter of debate in in front of the public on television. That is pathetic. I want to ask you another question that um, our producer, actually, Karen Stern asked. Producers are allowed to ask questions too. She asks, uh, she's curious about how Iceland's recovery rate is so high um, that, you know, more than 1,800 people just more got the virus and only 10 passed away. Is that right? And uh, what attributes? What can you attribute your your success to? Is it that the ICUs were not overwhelmed? Was there any success with experimental treatments? There's no experimental treatment, and the experimental treatments that we tried all came from America. You know, I, I want to emphasize that what the methods that we used to deal with this are methods that we learned from you guys. All right, and and. The, and the, but, and the recovery rate in Iceland, I'm not so sure that it is so spectacular. I think that the virus has spread much, much more widely in the United States than you realize. I don't think that, the, I'm, I'm not convinced, for example, that the death rate in America is higher than in Iceland. But because you have, you have screened so little that you have only vague idea of how widely the virus has spread, I think that in the end, I, I would be very surprised if the recovery rate in the States would not be fairly similar to what it is in Iceland, with, with some ex- exception. You have, been, you have been unfortunate in the way in which uh, nursing homes of the elderly have become victims of the virus. But, but I, I, I think sort of overall it's going to end up being a very similar death rate from the virus once people have figured out really how widely the virus was spread in society. I very much hope so. I mean, does that imply that you think that the death rate is is actually that low? You know, once we actually know the scope of the real infection uh, prevalence around the world, that where where would you estimate the death rate might actually be? I I, I don't want to come up with a number, specific number, but I think it is probably somewhere between half a percent and one percent. But but that's the higher end. That is the higher end. I, I think in Iceland we will find out the death rate is somewhere around uh, 0.2 to 0.3 percent. Hmm. And you know, if it's between half a percent to one percent, help put that into context for people who might hear that and say, "Well, why are we all sheltering in place? Why did we shut down our entire economy if this is really not such a deadly disease?" I mean, compared to seasonal flu, one percent is still ten times deadlier, right? I I think that what you what makes this a very, very complicated phenomenon is that the virus treats people so differently. The clinical diversity mm-hmm. is so dramatic. There are those who are vulnerable in our society, the elderly and those with underlying disease that are so vulnerable to this. And, and it is a tradition, both in the American society and in the Icelandic society, to try to protect the vulnerable. And I think it was the only right thing to do to uh, implement these measures to uh, 
to have the shutdown, as you call it. Just at least one, as, as, as we were trying to figure out what is the really, what is the real death rate from this? What is the real injury that this is going to inflict on people? I think that now when we look back, some would be able, some would say, when we look back, we see that these were two extreme measures. I think we were showing an appropriate caution. I think that it would have been inhumane not to do this. That's something I think we've heard from Dr. Fauci uh, as well. He says he hopes people look back and say that we overreacted because then we probably reacted yes. appropriately. As so. always, I, I, I agree with Fauci on everything he says. Dr. Stevenson, I want to turn now to, to something you were just mentioning about how the virus seems to impact people so differently. And some of the, the reasons are, are known, age, underlying conditions, but genetics uh, is something that's being examined now to try to understand if we have differences that explain why some are more susceptible or have more severe disease. Tell us about any work you're doing there. Uh, what do you think this will tell us? Uh, everything in our lives, our vulnerability to disease, like everything else in our lives, is affected by genetics. And, and when you think about them, when you think about this virus and, and you think about the, this dramatic clinical diversity, you know, some people describe this as a mild cold. All this ends in an in a intensive care unit on a respirator. You, you know, there are even a fairly large percentage of those infected who never develop any symptoms, remain asymptomatic. And then if men get infected, they become much sicker than women. If children get infected, they get much, much milder disease than adults. So, and, and when you ask the question, what is it that generates this dramatic diversity in the clinical picture? One possibility is that it lies in the host genetics, in the genetics of the patients, that some are born vulnerable to this virus and other resistant. And we and others all over the world are exploring this. There are large international consortia trying to combine data to figure this out. A second possibility is that the diversity lies in, lies in the sequence diversity of the virus. Because we know that even though the, the mutational rate in the virus is relatively low, it has infected between four and five million people and has had an incredible opportunity to mutate. And basically every single nucleotide of these 30,000 nucleotides in the, in the virus have mutated. And one possibility is that these mutations have generated several strains of the virus and that uh, some of them uh, cause a disease that is more serious than the others. And the third possibility is that the clinical diversity lies in, in what we call prior exposure, that some people have been exposed to viruses similar to this one and have developed partial immunity. I mean, it could be any one of these three categories of reasons or a combination of the three, but currently there is no no convincing data supporting any of these any any of these possibilities so so we and the rest of the world is spending a lot of energy focusing on trying to figure this out if you had to make a hypothesis now i mean can you is there enough data to even try to to make a hypothesis about which one of those three or some combination thereof <laughs> explains it hypothesis Hypothesis come dime a dozen. You can put together a lot of them, and I have listened to many of them over the past few days. I I think that uh, I, I I would I, my guess is having a little bit of data is that 
a lot of the difference is going to lie in the nature of the immune response that you generate against the virus. The differences in the humoral immune response against the virus is, is I think, going to explain some of this. And you think that will be determined by our own genetics, not something that's induced by which virus we see or what viruses we've seen before? I, th I, I think that this virus it generates very, very, a large, many kinds of immune responses. And I think what kind you amount against the virus is going to be very, very influential. And then you have to keep in mind that your the immune response you mount is in many ways dictated by your genetics. So I think that is gonna, this is going to be a intertwining of all kinds of reasons that come, come that generate a final vector that dictates how you're going to do if you get infected. Mm. You know, we've heard stories of some people who've had mild disease uh, and have been tested with antibody tests later only to find they don't have very high titers of antibodies. Um, I'm just trying to sort of make sense of the idea that our immune response would determine what kind of severity we see with this disease. Um, you know, what, what explains why somebody who did encounter the disease, had very mild disease, had very low antibody titers? You see, this is a, this is a complicated one because uh, you need to mount some sort of an immune response to clear the virus, but then the immune response can become a participant in causing the disease. And that is one of the concerns. For example, people have been talking about so-called cytokine storm as being a cause of some of the very, very serious cases of the disease that the immune, your immune system overreacts to the virus. And, and then, then there's also discussions of, of the possibility that the antibodies you, you make against the virus that in some instances they may help the virus to get into the cells of your body. But these are all speculations, and, and uh, we need to wait for more data to come before we can be absolutely convinced and, and before we can express ourselves in, in a definitive way. Still to come, the speed with which scientists are developing treatments is almost miraculous, says Dr. Stephenson. But how risky is a brand new vaccine? Don't go away. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture-proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. 
Welcome back to the keynote. I'm Meg Terrell. You're listening to my conversation with Dr. Kari Stefansson, founder and CEO of Decode Genetics in Reykjavik, Iceland. What is your assessment of the data you've seen so far on remdesivir uh, and also on various vaccines uh, in development? We've seen some animal data. We saw some data from Moderna on its uh, vaccine in human trials this week. How, how, how do you look at that? I mean, remdesivir is not a medical cure. It has uh, in the in the trial that has been published, it it showed uh, 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 some effect. People who got the medicine um, did a little bit better, but I wish it had been a bigger effect. But nevertheless, it is an effect. It is an effect that has been proven. It's not just uh, a speculation on the behalf of a high-ranking political officer. It is a real effect. The, the vaccine so far, yes, it is very nice to see that um, a vaccine that is being developed generates a, a brisk immune response in a, in a handful of individuals. But that is a, a few miles away from being proving as efficacious vaccine. But it is really, really nice to see how the world is focused on this. I mean, keep in mind this virus, this, this disease is hardly five months of age. And people mm -hmm. have already made vaccines that are, or started to make vaccines that are in clinical trial. And, and that is almost miraculous. I think that the way in which the industry has responded to um, uh, this disease is, is an extraordinarily, let's put it this way, I think the, the industry is showing that it has a heart. The industry has shown that it's willing to contribute a lot in the, in the battle against the, the virus. I mean, it's not just the vaccines that are being developed. There are several, there are several pharmaceutical companies that are now trying to develop therapeutic antibodies, you know, which is, which is an interesting way to try to develop a medicine because the way in which the body heals itself or gets rid of the virus is by raising antibodies against it. So we know that it is possible to, uh, to control the virus with an antibody. So you don't have to go through, through the, through the, uh, jump through the hoop of demonstrating that a therapeutic hypothesis is correct because it has been proven by nature. So, so there are several companies trying to develop therapeutic antibody and are making reasonably good progress. I know that Amgen is one of those companies working on it, Amgen being the parent company of Decode. Uh, does, is Decode contributing to that work at all? We have been, you see, they, they begin the uh, attempt to develop a therapeutic antibody by isolating uh, B cells or B cell lineage from patients who have recovered from the, from the disease. So what we have contributed at Decode to this is that we we actually have started antibody screening in the Icelandic population, and uh, we uh, recruited uh, a few individuals who had the disease uh, or actually were infected without becoming seriously sick, but had very, very high antibody titer, and they actually volunteered to give uh, uh, lymphocytes to start this process on. So there is a, there is a vigorous attempt now in... in uh, one of Amgen's outposts in uh, British Columbia, uh, beginning with, with B lymphocytes from these patients in Iceland to develop uh, 
try to develop the therapeutic antibodies. So yes, indeed, Amgen, the parent company of Decode, is involved with that, but so are also many other companies. And what I think is, is uh, to me, is extraordinarily nice to experience is that when it comes to this particular task, everybody is turning their backs together. These are not a bunch of pharmaceutical companies uh, comp competing with each other in a merciless manner. This is a bunch of pharmaceutical companies that are trying to work towards the same goal, which is to provide the world with a therapeutic antibody. And, and I don't know of any of these companies that is focusing on it as an attempt to generate a particularly marketable product, but an attempt to contribute to a man's battle against the virus that is posing a threat to the, to the species. And on that note, do you think that companies that are successful in developing a therapeutic or a vaccine should make a profit from helping with the pandemic? I, I, I actually know, or the companies that I know are not in this to try to, to get profit from, from the making of, of a, a therapeutic. That is not the primary goal of this. The primary goal of this is to find the way to control a bad disease. And, and I think that the, I think that the industry is focused on it in that way. And I think that the industry looks at, at this as, as a, an opportunity to show the world that they are the good guys. Well, one big question as all of these uh, therapies and, and particularly vaccines get through the development process is how much data will we need to uh, be assured of their safety? Uh, and we're, we're talking about these timelines, particularly for vaccine development, we've never seen before, potentially having vaccine by the end of this year or early 2021. How much data do you think is needed to really ensure that vaccines could be safe for people uh, if they're deployed on a broad scale? It is very important to recognize that when you're trying to develop a treatment for a disease, when you are developing methods to prevent a disease, it is basically uh, impossible to, uh, it is impossible or it is not wise to assume that you will be able to put together something that is safe. When you're trying to treat a disease you know, with a medicine, you are manipulating a biochemical pathway. And most of the biochemical pathways are such that in some people, when you try to begin to manipulate them, it leads to or, or, or what, what is the appropriate dose for some is too big of a dose for others. So you have to assume that it's always going to be a some percentage of those who take the medicine that it generates side effects in. When you're immunizing people, you, can, you also have to assume that the immune response of people differs substantially. Some people will develop swelling at the site where you put the vaccine, etc., some people may develop fever, etc. But in general, vaccines are, are among the safest interventions in the health of people that you can, yeah, that you can use. And there are not many examples of, of dangerous vaccines. So, so, and one of the things you have to realize that when at this moment, this virus poses substantial threat to our way of living, and, and we should be willing to take some risk to contain it. I'm not saying that we should not follow all of the rules, uh, that we should not um, 
have very, very stringent criteria for the use of these vaccines, but we still have to keep in mind what the task is that is before us. And we have to recognize that there may be moments when we should take a little bit more risk than we would have otherwise done. That was my conversation with Dr. Kari Stephenson. He's the founder and CEO of Decode Genetics. He joined me May 20th by video conference from his office in Reykjavik, Iceland. The keynote is produced by the CNBC events team. For information on upcoming events and how you can participate, please visit cnbcevents.com. I'm Meg Terrell. Take care and thanks for listening. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.